Hey, quick note, there are English and Spanish episodes of Anything for Selena. This is the English one. Si quieres escuchar en español, vuelve al feed y selecciona la versión con el título en español. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. I have this video from when I was about 10 years old. I think my dad's recording. The camera is pointed at a den where all the furniture has been arranged against the wall to create a dance floor. The shot is wide. It's at my grandmother's house in Juarez. It's New Year's Eve. My aunts and uncles are dancing. There's a bunch of little kids running around. One is asleep on a couch. An older cousin and I are dancing together. She's facing the camera. I'm not. I'm just a lot of curly hair and 90s jeans and combat boots. My aunt comes in the shot. She walks up to me. The camera captures her whispering in my ear. Her smile is playful. I can still hear her exact words. Como quisiéramos todas tener unas pompis como tú. How we wish we could all have a butt like yours. My aunt had been watching my butt while I danced. Actually, a bunch of my aunts had. They'd actually talked about it among themselves. I turn around to look at the spectators behind me. Then at the camera, my cheeks flush. I laugh nervously. But then I just keep dancing, kind of unfazed. Mostly because by 10, I was used to talking about my butt. Or more like hearing about my butt. Or just about butts in general. My mom doesn't remember the specific moment captured on camera, but she remembers how my butt looked at this age. Sí, me acuerdo que, que había pantalones, faldas. That I'd wear pants, skirts. Que te veías así, bien. That would make me look golosa. Northern Mexican slang for something like thick. Not T-H-I-C-K thick. T-H-I-C-C thick. It's in the family, my mom says. We're early bloomers. By 10, I had curves. Curves my family talked about a lot. I admit now, I think it's weird and kind of disturbing. But back then, it was like the most normal thing to talk about my butt, my cousin's butt, my aunt's butts. Even my grandma would talk about her butt. And it was always the same aspirations. Para mí, el cuerpo ideal es este, chiquitas del torso. To have a small torso. Este, piernita, tus piernas, bien, bien torneaditas. Shapely legs. Tus pompis así bien redonditas, redondeadas, gorditas. And most importantly, a very round, fat butt. In my community, in my family, that was the dream. Es algo que nosotros apreciamos en nuestra 
crecimiento, este, vemos nuestras pompis y wow. But not in the mainstream. On TV or in magazines, the popular body type in the 1990s was different. You know, someone like Jane Fonda. This schedule will do the most to reduce your body fat. Or Cindy Crawford. All girls always worry about their rear ends and their legs and their stomach. I feel like now that we It was so confusing to me when I'd hear my white friends talk about wanting a small butt. Or to hear that sentiment in movies, like in The Craft. Hey, oh, something to me. Something to me. What do you want? Um... Oh, a smaller ass. Oh, oh my God. Becky, look at her butt. And remember this song? Before Sir Mix-a-Lot so raunchily exalts the big butt, the song starts off with two presumably white women, one of them literally named Becky, ogling a black woman. I mean, her butt is just so big. The women deride the other woman's body because she's just so black. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. And when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Fast forward three decades and black women like Megan Thee Stallion, Lizzo, Beyonce lead the celebration of big butts. Black women always have. But now, black women aren't the only ones. White women, who once worked out to flatten their butts, now want big butts. Kim Kardashian broke the internet with hers. So today I am going to get a butt x-ray, and if this is what it takes to shut up the entire world, that my butt is real, then I will happily do it. Jen Selter, another white woman, is the self-proclaimed Instagram queen of the Belfie, the butt selfie. When I first started posting photos, I never thought my butt would be this, like, sensation or the most known butt on Instagram these days. And the exercise tutorials to go from a flat butt to a fat butt are like their own genre online now. Hey guys, it's Gabby, and today we are doing big booty workout. We are going to get that booty plump, nice, round, juicy, you know, do this twice So what changed? How did we get here to the era of the butt? How did we do a whole 180 on butts as a country? I have a theory that there's a direct historical lineage from Selena to mainstream butt culture. And I'm going to walk you through that theory. It may sound trivial, but this episode, one about butts, it's the one that has made me ask some of the most profound questions about blackness and Latino identity. It's made me look at which Latinos are glorified and which are erased. Because butt politics, make no mistake, is about race. I'm Maria Garcia, and this is Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. When I was a kid, 
I remember how much the Spanish press talked about Selena's body constantly. Reporters always asked how she maintained her figure. By doing nothing, she'd say. She'd talk about how much she loved to eat, desserts, Mexican food. And famously, a medium pepperoni pizza all by herself. Interviewers were obsessed with how Selena never worked out. And ate junk food. And she said she drank Coca-Cola instead of water. When she started her clothing line, the sizing went up to size 18. Rather anomalous for the times. And Selena showcased her curves. She'd wear the tightest of tights, her midriff often exposed, an embellished bra on top. She got asked about her fashion choices a lot, sometimes with a weirdly judgy tone. Um, the type of clothing that I use on stage is... You mean you wear underwear on stage? No, 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 no. I wear uh, the black leggings. Well, I now I'm... I'm varying my clothing now. But before, I, that's all I wore. It was the bras with the rhinestones all over them. Whoa. Selena's body type hadn't been celebrated in media all that much before. Even in Latin America. Her sister Suzette noticed, too. You know, when we looked at TV, like on Sabado Gigante and shows like that, it was that typical huera, blonde hair, light skinned. You know, yes, that is a form of a Latina. There's this different—we come in all shapes and sizes. The shape and size, what Selena represents, most of us Mexican-Americans are shaped like that. And that's who—that is what I think resonates within all of us, why we look at Selena and we, you know, fans look at her, people look at her, and they, they go, oh, dark skin. That's darker skin. That's me. Darker hair. That's me. Her body shape is like me. Selena is me. Okay, here's the thing. Selena was still thin, thicker than most on TV, but still thin. So I'm not saying Selena was a bastion for what we now know as body positivity. That's not the take here. But I do believe her brown body, and specifically her butt, changed culture in a demonstrable way, in a way that illustrated all of these forces, race, history, identity, at work. And I made this episode to prove it. First, though, I want to sit with a thought for a moment. Selena was a breathing woman with thoughts of her own. And her dad told me a story that really elucidated for me Selena's very human feelings about her body. She had a body on her. Yeah. You know. She didn't get it from me. (laughs) People ask me all the time, oh my God, was it so weird to talk to Selena's dad about her butt? 
And I'm like, no. Of all the things we talked about, this topic was the one I was least nervous about. Selena's family reminds me of my own. And again, we talk about this stuff. So, okay, totally not awkward story time with Selena's dad. The story takes place on the road. The band stopped at a Whataburger to have lunch. Oh my God, I left the keys inside. (sighs) But they got locked out of their tour bus. So Selena offered to climb through a tiny window up front. She went in with her arms first, her head, then squeezed her shoulders, and she starts squeezing and thought she's going to make it. But she got as far as her butt. That was it. That was it. She got stuck. She got stuck. Poor thing. Selena's butt was too big to get through the window. And everyone saw. Let me tell you, I got scared. We couldn't pull her out back out. I thought I had to break the window. (laughs) But she squeaked. Everybody was laughing and she started crying. Oh. Oh, she started crying. Because she was embarrassed, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> This story is funny, but also what I take from it is that Selena, who was used to being in the spotlight, who was used to answering questions about her figure, who was used to all kinds of stares, cried because her butt couldn't fit through a window. She was a real person, with complicated feelings about her body. I never want to forget that. After Selena's death, the obsession with her body only intensified. Salacious broadcasters speculated about whether she'd had plastic surgery. With others staunchly defending how real her body was. Then talk of the late Selena's body reached a high when casting for her biopic began in early 1996. From the beginning, director Gregory Nava emphasized the importance of Selena's appearance. This is him talking about it at a screening for another of his movies. She was an incredibly beautiful woman. But it wasn't the cliche idea of beauty. It wasn't the playmate type of beauty. It was a real uh, 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 Latina, indígena look. You see? She had a big... And she didn't even, she just went out there and put it all out there, you know? And because she saw herself and accepted herself as being so beautiful. Producers of the movie held auditions in cities like L.A., Chicago, and Miami. 21,000 people tried out to play Selena. It was the largest audition since the search for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. I distinctly remember hearing a lot about how the chosen actress had to have the right body. And more specifically, a big butt. Like, this was legitimate criteria for whomever played Selena. Must have butt. And then, 
a young fly girl turned actress came into the picture. Someone with a very similar figure. Someone who could embody Selena, even from behind. Hi, Entertainment Tonight. I'm Jennifer Lopez, and you're on the set of Selena. Welcome. I'll be playing, if you haven't figured it out, Selena. <laughs> At first, a lot of people were upset about the casting. There were protests. Selena's Mexican-American identity was central to her. Why choose a Puerto Rican woman when there were so many women of Selena's background who wanted the role? Selena's sister, Suzette, has said she was surprised by the reaction. But even then, she knew Jennifer was the right choice. In my head, I'm like, it doesn't matter. She's Latina, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the important thing. And the fact that she's physically looks like my sister's, I mean, like, body-wise, mm-hmm. I thought it was perfect. So perfect, Selena's mom noticed. When the movie came out, Marcella told Jennifer Lopez, Jennifer, you got a big butt like Selena. And the reporters picked it up. And from that point on, she started talking about her butt. Remember, there was a period of time that I saw they were talking about her butt. Yeah, that's what they were talking about. Coming up, Jennifer Lopez and the Big Butt Revolution. How she gave form to a new mainstream and marketable Latina look. Selena the movie begins with Jennifer Lopez, a.k.a. J-Lo, getting ready for what was Selena's last performance at the Houston Astrodome. The camera follows J-Lo in the now iconic sparkly plum jumpsuit Selena wore. As she's about to walk on stage, the camera lingers behind her. J-Lo's butt is the center of the shot, very intentionally and obviously emphasized. As if director Gregory Nava is saying, see, Jennifer can fill Selena's clothes. She has the butt to play her. She's the right choice. It's so interesting to me that it was more important for Jennifer to have Selena's butt than Selena's voice. J-Lo lip-synced Selena's songs, sometimes famously flaring her lips a little too much. She talked about lip-syncing on Entertainment Tonight. I'm a dancer. I'd be singing and the mic be over here. You know, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, oh, the mic, you know, because it's not really my voice. That concert scene was really recreated with tens of thousands of fans in the audience. By the way, we requested interviews with J-Lo and director Greg Nava, both declined. But Nava has said the concert experience was so emotional for Jennifer. The next day in her dressing room, she said she decided to try for a musical career. This is how she described it. 
And when I walked in and they all started screaming, they were screaming Selena, but they were screaming Jennifer too. You know, you feel that love and, and there was a huge amount of love in that audience. There's 33,000 people in there. You know, my mom is by the monitor with Marcella, Selena's mother, and they're watching it. And she says to my mom, it's like watching my own daughter up there again. It's incredible. And of course, you know, they were hugging and crying. If Selena's death bolted Latinos into visibility, then her biopic solidified them as a market in the U.S. Here was a major Hollywood film with a Latina lead, and it wasn't about gangs or poverty or immigration. This was an evolved representation of the fastest-growing ethnic group in the country. Entire new platforms for Latinos started popping up. Latina Magazine launched simultaneously with the Selena movie. We were lucky enough to be able to launch the magazine in uh, May of 96 in conjunction with the announcement that Warner Brothers made of Jennifer Lopez being chosen to play Selena. Wow, what a moment uh, in history. This is Gabriel Reyes. He was the first publicist for Latina Magazine. And it was him who suggested Jennifer to be the very first star on the cover. She was the perfect target for us. You know, Bronx-born, Puerto Rican, second generation, third generation. um, And, um, you know, she just really fit the bill. Jennifer was the perfect person to draw in their new target audience. Second or third generation Latinas tapped into the wider culture. And here she was, playing Selena, who had become the quintessential symbol of Latinidad, of being Latino in America. Can you just tell me what the premiere, what, what you think of this premiere tonight? Uh, well, uh, I gotta say, uh, Batman move over. Because <laughs> this is pretty big. I didn't expect it to be so big. I, I'm really pleased that uh, the fans came out and supported but I In my mind, when I think about it, it's par for course when it comes to Selena's fans. They always come out and support. Latina Magazine wasn't the only media platform to launch out of Selena's legacy. As we talked about in an earlier episode, People en Español was created in response to a sold-out tribute magazine dedicated to Selena. Suddenly, Latino media and Latino content were a whole thing, with the Selena J-Lo identity as the apex of what being Latino looked like and sounded like. Selena didn't just feel like a Mexican-American treasure. She felt like a treasure for all Latinos. And Mexicans embraced Puerto Rican J-Lo, opening up the door for pan-Latino solidarity. In 2019, over 20 years after its release, cultural critic Shea Serrano dedicated a chapter in his book Movies and Other Things to the Selena movie. I talked to him about it. So you wrote, Jennifer Lopez is not Mexican. I know that. Obviously, I know that. But she played one in 1997. And so we attached ourselves to Lopez immediately and absorbed her into our community wholly and entirely, and it's been that way for nearly all of her career. Tell me about that. So so when you see Jennifer, like, to you, is she, like, is she part of the, the Mexican family? 
<laughs> yeah, they 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 all are. And if you have a if your last name ends in a Z or an S or a vowel, we just are automatically like, oh, you got to be one of us. You're close enough <laughs> that you're going to be that you're going to be one of us. Shay remembers this time J Lo playing Selena, a new Latinidad forming. He remembers seeing people in Espanol magazines at his house. Remember that always being like. On, in the bathroom on top of the the little shelf. I didn't read people in Espanol. I don't speak Spanish. My parents didn't teach it to me growing up, but like it was a thing you saw all of the time and it was fucking always Ricky Martin on the cover or Salma Hayek or them two together for some reason. <laughs> this image of Latinidad took off. It became a cultural force. Enter the so-called Latin explosion circa 1999. She's into Six songs by Latino artists would chart as number one hits, including songs by Ricky Martin, Shakira, and Mark Anthony. When that Latin explosion happened, it was really, it was awesome. This is Gabriel Reyes, the publicist for Latina Magazine again. We felt like we had arrived at the work that we had done in those few years um, had paid off. And Jennifer Lopez, who'd propelled to stardom from playing Selena, still led the Latino wave in 1999, this time as a singer. Latinas were on MTV, on the cover of magazines in the grocery store aisles, and their presence started shifting beauty ideals. I think she brought, you know, curves. She brought um, style and she brought that that Bronx vibe to it that we hadn't seen before. You know, Jenny from the Block, the album that she recorded then was on the six, which was, you know, talking about the six train, that she would take the six train from the Bronx to go down into Manhattan. So it was that vibe, that whole kind of, you know, street vibe, Bronx vibe mixed with her Puerto Rican glamour and her curves that lay down a new beauty ideal, I think. In other words, butts were in. In the February 1998 issue of Movie Line, J-Lo posed on the magazine cover with nothing but a white fur coat around her nude body. When asked what she would like to be recognized for, J-Lo is quoted as saying this. When a dress is on a woman, it shouldn't look like it's on a coat hanger. So many girls here are so thin. In fact, nobody else in Hollywood really has my type of body. My husband calls it la guitarra, like the shape of a guitar, which I love because that was always my ideal woman growing up. So call me the guitar girl. By the late 90s, practically every article or TV interview with J-Lo brought up her butt. It was a whole butt craze. 21, Jennifer Lopez turned the fashion world on its ear with a bottom that shot her straight to the top. I don't know. This is you and your underpants. I like that. I like uh, I like looking at girls in their underpants. Right? You know, you can serve drinks on her butt, really. She came with two limos, one for her, one for ass. That's right. It's just our time. Women with the big booty. 
But there was at least one TV personality who wasn't that impressed. Because there's been all this talk about, like, you know, my girlfriend Gail, I didn't even know this, but my girlfriend Gail and I talk online. She goes, you know, like, people are always talking about her bottom. This, of course, is Oprah on her show in 1999. She goes, but honey, tell her that if she wants to see a bottom, I'll show her my bottom. That's a bottom. (laughs) And everybody's always saying she has a big bottom. You just have a bottom that's in proportion to, yeah. to yourself. Yeah, I have a, I have a, you know, a large rear, I guess, for the norm. But you know, for me, it's normal. For what I norm? Grew up no, because black women know? have had this bottom exactly. all our lives. Coming up, from Jennifer Lopez to Kim Kardashian, the whitewashing of butts. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. A new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. When I pitched this podcast, I knew immediately that I wanted to do an episode about butts. Because I witnessed this progression from big butt aversion to big butt love in my lifetime. The mainstream caught up with my family, but mostly caught up with black culture. But the thing is, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think the world just magically came to appreciate a feature that was once so derided. And I don't think the story here is just, oh, Selena had a big butt, J-Lo was cast as Selena in part because of her butt, J-Lo got famous through Selena and spurred this massive change in American beauty. I don't think it ends here. And that's because it also doesn't start here. We have to go back to where this obsession with butts begins. And in the Eurocentric world... It starts with Sarah Bartman, a black woman who was enslaved in the early 19th century and paraded throughout Europe because she had a big butt. 
a butt that was seen as so different from European norms of femininity and beauty that it was displayed as this oddity. And after she died, her butt was preserved and it, it was a traveling, I mean, both when she was alive, but also after her death was a traveling exhibit of freakiness or oddness. This is Isabel Molina Guzman. She's a professor at the University of Illinois. She wrote a book called Dangerous Curves, Latina Bodies in the Media. For more than 150 years, until 1974, people could go to a museum in Paris and see Sarah Bartman's genitals and brains on display. And so I think... You know, that history is the history that Afro-Latinos, Black uh, Americans, Black Europeans have been living with, right? The sense that there is something abnormal about the size of our booties. Body politics came from this history, a fixation on Black features while dehumanizing Black people. And I don't think this latest chapter of butt mania is divorced from this history of racism. I think the key here is why J-Lo? Jennifer Lopez became so famous for her butt Mm -hmm. over, say, like other famous women at the time who had very similar curves, particularly uh, Black women performers like Angela Bassett or Janet Jackson? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And, um, you know, she did embody a kind of racialized body type without necessarily embodying blackness. I think that allowed her a certain level of visibility and desirability um, in the U.S., uh, especially, you know, given our you know, racialized politics and histories, you know, she, she was, she had a black body without being black. I mean, didn't Oprah say it best? Because black women have had this bottom all our lives. Look, I'm not saying that a big butt is exclusive to black people. What I am saying is that big butts have historically been treated differently on a black body than on a white or brown body. And J-Lo was celebrated for her butt and capitalized on it, in part because she was palatable to white America. She inspired people like Kim Kardashian, who took the butt to a whole new break-the-internet level. This is her in a video from her Instagram. My inspiration for everything has always been Jennifer Lopez. I would always try to see like what shoes she'd wear, what makeup, what hair. Like I began, I like became obsessed with glam because of Jennifer. Kim K and J Lo have been able to flaunt their curvy features and make money from them without facing the lived experiences and discrimination that Black women face. I mean, for me, I think it really, um, because she is so 
hate to use the word ambiguous, but you know, ethnically ambiguous. Even though she's not racially ambiguous, she's um, you know, neither her nor Selena would be identified as as being a black woman. But they also couldn't necessarily be identified as being white. And so I think because of that ambiguity, I think the marketers, the the film producers, the you know the the music industry was able to market her in a way that could reach a broader range of audiences. And JLo's ascension came to help define Latinidad in the U.S. A lot. She was the most visible Latina in the country. Maybe still is. Rather than being, you know, hypersexualized in these negative ways, all of a sudden our body type was being celebrated as an ideal uh, marker of beauty. That recognition sounds like something to champion, right? And it wasn't just about her body. Remember our cultural critic, Shay Serrano, who earlier said J-Lo was an honorary Mexican? Even for him, J-Lo's representation on screen was deeply profound. To see your kind on TV. And I couldn't remember, maybe beyond like Rosie Perez, seeing somebody who was young and cool and the same general color and like brown hair and brown eyes. When you're 13, 14 years old, you don't understand that that's what your body is doing or that that's what your brain or your heart is doing, like sort of pulling you toward this thing that because you recognize yourself in it, you just think it's like a cool thing, a cool person. So you start to attach yourself to it um, for those reasons. You don't realize until you get older, oh, that's why I was doing that. That's what I was chasing after or, or looking for. I feel that too. Not necessarily about the movie, but about Selena. Selena changed my life. Really. Her life showed me representation. Her death showed me what it looked like to be in solidarity with others. Her legacy helped me articulate my own Latinidad. She gave me a place in the world. But the current image of Latinidad that Selena helped to spur, and that J-Lo and Ricky Martin and Mark Anthony and Shakira expanded, it leaves people out. People like Melania Luisa Marte, a Black Dominican poet. I think the first time I really started reflecting on, um, you know, feeling kind of different, um, as a kid, I remember seeing the first the first Black woman I had seen in a soap opera, um, in a telenovela. Specifically, she recalls a show on Spanish-language TV called Chica da Silva. Even though um, the telenovela was from Brazil, I, it was so interesting to me to see that the first Black woman I had seen on a Spanish-speaking network in a telenovela was Chica. And Chica was a slave in the telenovela. Melania writes a lot about her experience in the U.S. as a Black woman with roots in a Spanish-speaking country. You know, I, I believe, like, when I saw it, I was about, like, 11 or 12. That's when I really started shifting away. Like, I used to watch telenovelas with my mom in the afternoons, and that's when I really started shifting away from watching telenovelas. 
Melania was born in New York City and moved to Texas as a child. She spent summers in the Dominican Republic, where her parents are from. She remembers her mom loving Selena. I think for my mom, that was the first time she had seen like a curvy Latina really take up space in media and really um, be celebrated in that way. Despite this inspiration from Selena, Melania didn't engage much with Latino media growing up. She didn't see herself there. Instead, she gravitated elsewhere. I definitely watched a lot of, like, That's a Raven and Cheetah Girls and, like, anything Beyonce was doing, whether it was, like, Destiny's Child or, you know, her going solo. Like, you know, I definitely felt very seen through Black girl media. And for Melania, Latinidad never felt like it represented her. It was too much of an umbrella term. Even as a child, you didn't consider yourself a Latina? No, well, as a child, it was like we grew up and we were like Dominican. And like my brother would like tell us, he was like, we're Dominican. We're black kids who speak Spanish. That's who we are. You know, like I feel like Caribbean culture is like its own culture. Like it's like very specific things that come from the Caribbean and from living on an island that kind of have their uh, very distinct differences from, I think, the general Latinx culture. And I think that really is what made that difference in, in terms of like not really identifying as Latina. Hearing Melania a Dominican woman saying that she has never felt welcomed in Latinidad makes me ashamed of it. Latinidad, in flawed but real ways, has made me feel seen. But it hasn't done the same for Melania. Melania says it makes her feel invisible and that it exploits her culture. There's this obsession with Black culture, but there's this complete disregard for Black life. And so I think Latinidad, in the same way that white um, popular culture does it, Latinidad does it as well. There's this obsession with the features, not the people. I see it. It's always the same Latinos who are upheld. And they are mostly white or light-skinned. On them, a big butt is safe, desirable. But beauty is not apolitical. And I've come to realize Latinidad is not neutral. So the butt, to me, is a story about a reckoning, about Latinidad coming to terms with how it was built, how it has been defined through Selena and J-Lo and the Latin boom, as though it was an identity for all of us. But it never was. And maybe it's time we confront that. Next time, Selena is often called the queen of Tejano music. And in the 1990s, she brought this underdog genre to international heights. But then, Tejano went from boom to bust. They go by numbers. Numbers means money. The American corporations don't care about cultures. 
They care about that mighty American dollar. And they know that there's more Mexican people here living in the United States than there is Mexican Americans. So that's what they're going after. Because there's money, more, more money. I discovered this isn't just about a musical genre. It's a story of immigration, assimilation, money, and how too often ignored groups were pitted against each other. That's next week on Anything for Selena. If you like this episode, join us for an after party on Instagram Live, where we'll tell you about the making of the episode, chat with special guests, and have a little drink together. Start your weekend with us every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Instagram. Find us at Selena underscore podcast. Anything for Selena is a co-production of the iLab at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, and Futuro Studios. I'm your host, Maria Garcia. Our producers are Kristen Torres, Antonia Cerejido, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with additional production assistance from Frank Hernandez, Sandra Riaño, and Maria Alexa Cavanaugh. Mixing and sound design by Paul Veitkis. Our editor is Marlon Bishop. Ben Brock Johnson is the executive producer of the iLab and contributed production management and editing. Additional editing by Sofia Baliza Carr. Some original music for this episode was composed by Paul Veitkis. Special thanks to Carla O. Alvarez, the U.S. Latino Latina archivist at the University of Texas at Austin, and to Mary Beltran, Associate Professor and Director of the Latino Media Arts and Studies Program at the University of Texas at Austin. Ileana Galvez created the artwork for this series. Find out more about anything for Selena on Twitter and Instagram at Selena underscore podcast and at WBUR.org slash anything for Selena.